Well, I'm glad to be able to work through Hebrews again with you, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. I uh, just wanted to put uh, a little bit of uh, a plug in for a uh, video that we shared earlier in the week. I gave you some thoughts about uh, what, what uh, God was using to sustain me in the midst of this pandemic. And so uh, the way you'd find that on our website, if you're interested in that, uh, would be to go to the red banner on the top of the website and to click on that. And uh, that'll take you to some videos from the pastors, uh, some updates, and the second one down. Uh, the first few minutes of that video would be four thoughts that are sustaining to me uh, in the midst of this pandemic. I, I hope that that would be helpful to you, and I trust that God will give you uh, grace and strength. Uh, this week as well, uh, we'll be uh, sending you some information about uh, how to be looking forward to Good Friday and Easter. Uh, in the meanwhile, I encourage you to start reading through uh, the gospel narrative accounts of the Passion Week of Christ. And to do that, uh, not only with yourself, but maybe uh, you've got a family member you can read through that with, or perhaps you can reach out to another member and uh, do that uh, on Zoom, or at least read it at the same time and uh, discuss it together. But uh, uh, just because our church building will be closed on Sunday, that does not mean we cannot celebrate Easter, and uh, we're looking forward to being able to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection uh, this week together. Well, last week we had the privilege of looking closely at the greatest human sacrifice the world has ever seen. The sacrifice of the perfect, innocent Son of God, Jesus Christ. And I can't imagine a more important topic for us to consider at this time. Because this topic is what gives us hope, not only in this life, amid all of the trials or crises we might face, but also it gives us hope in the life to come. I'm really excited about working through Hebrews with you right now because um, I think that it will help us learn how to think and to talk about the cross. A lot of contemporary preaching uh, and teaching about the cross seems to be quite shallow and trite. So Jesus' cross is super cool, it's awesome. Or, as I actually heard one preacher say this week, Jesus is lit. Uh, now, don't ask me what that means. Uh, you could ask my kids about that. But Hebrews and uh, the text that was read in the, 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 the video earlier, Colossians 1, those sort of texts give us deeper, more profound ways to talk about the cross. These thoughts and words... Uh, are not what popular contemporary voices say about Jesus' sacrifice. Their message is ever-changing. Uh, but these ways of thinking and talking about the cross are the ways that the eternal God, through the Holy Spirit of God, spoke about it. And this sort of language is essential for Colonial Baptist Church. So last week we saw, we, we learned something about Jesus' sacrifice. We learned that he redeemed us, uh, he did so eternally, and then we learned he cleansed us, he cleansed us internally, he cleansed our conscience from dead works, and he did this so that we might worship or serve God. When we got to the end of the text, I suggested last week that the word to serve 
is a word that's often used in the Old Testament of the ministry of priests, their religious service in the tabernacle or temple. And I suggested that now we all are qualified to offer this sort of service to our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to the text this week, we come to a new section, but a section that continues to focus on Jesus' sacrifice. Here we'll learn two more reasons why Jesus' sacrifice is superior to the sacrifice of the Old Covenant. One reason is found in verses 15 through 22, that paragraph. And the second reason is found in verses 23 through 28. The first reason that we look to here is that uh, Jesus' sacrifice is better because it fully meets God's demands. One can clearly see the demands of God taking central focus in verses 15 through 22 by tracing the way the author of Hebrews uses two words. The first word is the word death. And so I want you to look in your Bible and look for this word. If you look at verse 15 in the middle of that verse, it says a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Then you go down to verse 16, you'll see this word again. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Then you look at verse 17 and you see the emphasis on death again. For a will takes effect only at death. That word captures God's demands. But then it gives way to another word for the rest of the paragraph that predominates or that dominates. That word is blood. So you look at the very last word of verse 18 and you see the word blood. You look in the middle of verse 19 and it talks about he, he took the blood of calves and goats. That's Moses. Then you go to verse 20 and you see that the author of Hebrews quotes an Old Testament text, Exodus 24, 8. He says, this is the blood of the covenant. You go into verse 21 in the middle, we find out that Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels in worship. And then in verse 22, you can see that the word blood is used two times there, blood and without the shedding of blood or bloodshed. This first paragraph has to do with God's demands. And these demands are twofold. First, God required death, verses 15 through 17. The way these three verses fit together, it starts with a summary statement and then the author gives an illustration. So we look first at that statement. Look at, look at verse 15. It says, therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 15 is a conclusion. It starts out with the word therefore, where the author is drawing to a close everything that he's been saying about the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, verse 15 is loaded. It's a very important uh, verse in the structure of Hebrews and the message of this book. Uh, there are a few things I'd like to emphasize about it. First, I emphasize that Jesus is performing the act of a mediator again. And that he is a, a very unique kind of mediator between God and man. For he's the only person who bears both parties in himself. 
He's not like an outsider helping negotiate between two peoples. No, he is both God and man and that way uniquely qualified to mediate. But then second, uh, we find out in verse 15 that he takes on this ministry for a specific purpose. He does so, the text says, that those who are called may receive a promised eternal inheritance. Again, even that little phrase is packed. We consider the objects of God's grace in this passage. It says that those who are called. That language to me sounds very Pauline, doesn't it? Sounds like Paul in the book of Romans or in Ephesians when he talks about the people that God has called. You can go to Romans 9, for instance, and, and hear about that. But the author of Hebrews, he talks about this as well. He talks about people being called. In Hebrews chapter 11, he uses this word twice, once of Abraham and, and once of Isaac as those who were objects of the call of God. So in our text, in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, I think that this could describe Israelites or the church or both. The question is, who is he referring to when he says those who are called? Could be the Israelites of the Old Testament or us, the church. I think it's probably best, though, to just keep this simple and say it talks about any person that God has called to salvation through Jesus Christ. Okay, so then in verse 15, we, we learn that, and then we consider what these people receive. See that in this summary statement? They receive the promised eternal inheritance. This word inheritance is often used in the scripture. It's all throughout the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch. And I found it uh, in a lot of texts where it talks about Israel being promised to inherit a land like Numbers 27 or Numbers 35 and 36. However, the author of Hebrews uses this word as well, this word inheritance in a few places like Hebrews 11 and verse 8, when it, when it talks about the portion that Abraham was going to receive from God, that God had promised to him. And so in our text, what he does with this word inheritance is he attaches a very important adjective. He says that it's eternal. So God's purposes in Christ's new covenant ministry were to provide a never-ending inheritance for his people. I think this is, of course, speaking of what Christ accomplished for us or what we inherit in heaven. Finally, we learn that all of this occurs, as the text says in verse 15, on the basis of a death. Here, one important note is to know that all of God's covenants were inaugurated with a death. They started out that way. They required that. This includes the covenants that God made with Adam and Noah, and Abram, and Moses. I think this is true because God in his covenants is overcoming sin. And as Paul says in Romans 5, through sin came death. They're together. And so if God is going to overcome sin, there will also be a death. What we learn in Romans 5 is that death is a consequence of sin. Someone or something has to die to deal with sin. So that's a clear statement here from God regarding his demands. A death was required. 
But then in verses 16 and 17, he illustrates why that is necessary in a covenant like the new covenant. Why does someone have to die? Look down in your Bibles at verse 16. Verse 16 says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. These two verses present, I think, one of the most difficult interpretive issues in the book of Hebrews. And that's saying something, because we've had some challenging passages. The challenge here involves whether the word that is translated will by the ESV translators uh, in verses 16 and 17 refers to a last will and testament, that's one idea, or a covenant. So is it a last will and testament or a covenant? The actual word that's used here is most frequently used in secular settings to describe a last will and testament. When in a religious context, it's most frequently used of covenant. And so most English translations uh, take this as a will, a secular use or illustration here. Uh, The New American Standard I, I saw this week translates it covenant. Now, in order to understand and and to figure out which one of these it is, and then to make sense of the illustration, we look at the actual Greek term. The Greek term uh, is the word that the author has been using all throughout Hebrews 7 through, through 10. He's been using it frequently, and every other time it occurs, it's translated covenant. So we would need a really, uh, uh, good contextual reason or reasons to change it here. And that's exactly what I would suggest to you that we need to do. Uh, To make a long story short, I think it's best to say that this is in reference to a last will and testament. And I could give you a whole host of reasons, but I'll just give you my two main ones, okay? So first, I I think... uh, The reason that I would hold this is because of the word inheritance up in verse 15. You see that there? When someone mentions this word inheritance just before the word for covenant or will, uh, normally in that context, it it brings to mind the secular occurrence. So for instance, uh, if, if, if you just hear someone talking about inheritance and rights of inheritance, you'd be typically thinking about a will. The other reason I think this is in reference to a will is because I think the shift from covenant to will is not even that significant because a last will and testament is a type of covenant anyway. Okay, so as we're going through verses 16 and 17, I think it's best to see this as a will, a last will and testament. And so what is the author doing with it? He's giving an illustration. He explains that for wills to take effect, a death is required. The death of the one who made the will, or you might say the will maker. He then adds that this will cannot be enforced. That's his language, cannot be enforced. It means uh, is not powerful until this death occurs. Now, although I think it's a bit different than our modern legal system, I think the point that he's making here is that the death of the one making a will is normally required before any inheritance could be experienced at all, before it goes into effect or it is powerful 
at all. And so I think he's just simply giving an illustration that God requires a death. And, and if, if the people who are going to inherit the blessings of the new covenant will, will, will inherit those blessings, a death has to occur. Now with a Jewish audience, I think this emphasis on the death of Jesus was something that was very important for them and something they needed to, to hear stressed. I'm mindful of what Paul the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 1 about the way that Jewish people typically responded to Jesus Christ dying on a cross. To them it was a stumbling block. They thought it was utter nonsense. They thought that the Messiah meant power and that he would bring the kingdom of God. They, they did not think of the cross and death as a picture of power and kingdom. They thought of it as a picture of a curse. So the author says that this death of Jesus that inaugurated the new covenant was absolutely necessary. I think he also emphasizes this with these Jewish readers so that they could see the parallel and the continuity between the covenants. Requiring a death to start a covenant was nothing new to God at all. That's what the way Yahweh works. That's what he requires for sin. It brings death as a consequence. But then the author's focus on God's demands is seen in an even more graphic way in verses 18 through 22. In his need for blood to be shed. Very graphic. Look with me at verse 18 in your Bibles. It says, Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without bloodshed. There is no forgiveness of sins. Here in verse 18, the author starts with a double negative to declare that something is absolutely true. And the point he makes is that even the first covenant with Moses was inaugurated with blood. His description of that inauguration, how Moses lays out the covenant before the people is twofold. He says that Moses started by declaring every command or commandment of the law to the people, reading the, the, perhaps the Ten Commandments to them. Then Moses takes blood and he sprinkles four things. He sprinkles the book. I think that could be the Ten Commandments or the Torah itself. And then he sprinkles all the people. And then he sprinkles the tent and he sprinkles every vessel that would be used in divine service. Now all of this bloodshed compels the author of Hebrews to summarize it this way. He says, nearly everything was covered in blood. Almost everything was covered in blood. His point is that the old covenant was a bloody covenant. Think about the millions of sacrifices and slain animals that would be shed in the 1,000 years of the existence of the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle, the furniture, the people, the priests, the book, they were all dripping with blood. And having said this, I think the author only has one more thing to say, and it's near the end of verse 22, when he says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. 
His point here is without blood shedding, there's no putting away of sins. God required death for sin. That's his righteous demands. And the only way they can be met is through death and eternity in hell or through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that inaugurates the new covenant. And so we see here one of the reasons Jesus Christ's sacrifice is superior to the sacrifice of the old covenant. It meets God's demands or it met God's demands. The second reason I want to give to you is found in verses 23 through 28. We'll look at this paragraph together and then we'll close. As we look at this paragraph, we'll explore the sacrifice of Jesus in another way. And we'll learn that the sacrifice of Jesus puts away sin. Look with me at verse 23. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God in our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The key to this section is to see that the author is talking about two appearances of Jesus in the passage. So take your Bible and look with me to find these. In verse 24, at the beginning of that verse, he says, For Christ has entered, and then skip several, uh, uh, several words there. You find near the end of the verse, now to appear. That's the first appearance that he talks about in, of Jesus in this text. He has entered to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Then in verse 26, you can see he repeats this past appearing of Jesus. When in the middle of that verse, he says, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. And then you go down in your Bible to verse 28 and you see another occurrence of this appearing, but this one is future. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear. My Bible, I mark these, for I believe that in these three occurrences, the author of Hebrews is describing two appearances of Jesus. In verses 24 and 26, uh, he is describing a heavenly appearance of Jesus. Okay? This is not the two comings of Jesus, not his first coming and second coming that the author's considering here. For this first one is a heavenly appearance, then the second one is a future earthly appearance. And so I want to look at the text, keeping that in mind. So verses 23 through 26 are about this heavenly appearance of Jesus. The text tells us that he did not make his appearance in an earthly tabernacle made by hands, but he went into heaven itself to deal with sin. As I've told you before, and some of this is review, I believe that this is at the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
Here the author uses very clear language, however, to tell us why Jesus did this. Why did he go into heaven's throne room and offer this sacrifice? Uh, He says in verse 24 that he did so on our behalf. That's why he goes for that purpose. He went on our behalf. And then at the end of verse 26, he says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. And here's his purpose. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Those words put away are quite strong. Jesus' purpose then in offering himself was to annul or remove sin. This word could be used of marriages that were declared by higher authorities never to have existed. They were annulled. But it's also used of contracts. Contracts that were entirely canceled. Entirely canceled. That's why I love the way the New American Standard translates this to put away sin. It translates it to do away with it. To do away with it. So this is why Jesus comes to to void or cancel the sin of people. This appearance we learn as well is at the end of the ages, which is just a powerful little expression. It's when two ages meet or collide. Okay, it's where they come together. And I think the reference here, the end of the ages, is between the old age and the old age meets the new order. Remember when we studied that earlier? It meets the new order, the time of reformation, the new age of Christ. And we learn that at this time, at his heavenly appearance, at his ascension, he offered his sacrifice once for all time. It's complete and it covers our sins. That's the heavenly appearance in verses 23 through 26. But there's another appearance in the text, and that's verses 27 and 28. It's been a little while since we read them, so look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In these verses, the author says that Jesus is going to appear again. For the author of Hebrews, this was a time in the future. And I think for us as well, it's a time in the future. This is yet to be fulfilled. Uh, There are three things I can tell you about this future appearance. One, I can tell you this is something uh, that is not present but will happen in the future. I can tell you as well that this text says that when he comes at that future time, it will be not to deal with sin. You see, Jesus has already dealt with that. As this text says, he bore the sins of many with one sacrifice. But we can also learn from this text that he does this to save some people. Okay, now I think this text is obviously a reference to the second coming of Jesus. I think this is Hebrews' most explicit reference to Jesus' second coming. And for us as a church, that would be the rapture where Jesus comes not to deal with our sin, but to save us, to save us from his wrath. Now, in my opinion, 
the imagery here uh, is perhaps a little bit different than what I've seen others talk about. I, uh, I haven't seen uh, commentators or scholars say too much about this, and when they do, they're not saying it the same way. In my opinion, with these two appearances, uh, the image that is uh, in the background is still the high priest on the Day of Atonement. I want you to imagine that for a moment. I want you to see that as a tie pointing to Christ. The high priest appeared in the Holy of Holies. That's his first one, the earthly tabernacle back in the inner sanctum. And he went there to deal with sin. Men and women, Jesus has already done that in heaven. But then the high priest appears again, this time to the people in front of them, not to deal with sin, but to help those who were awaiting an answer. I want you to imagine the camp of Israel as the high priest would go back into the Holy of Holies. They would want to know, was, was God's wrath appeased? Was atonement accomplished? And then finally, the high priest emerges out of the tent to say that their sin has been covered, at least temporarily. This picture then applied to Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a picture not that he would go back into this holy of holies and offers on sacrifice again. No, this time he's going to come and he's going to save some people. Who are those people? I mean, uh, who are they? And the text says it's those who were eagerly waiting for him. That's who Jesus will come to save, those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that this would be true of any believer in Jesus Christ. Yet uh, I'm convinced that there is a form of false faith that is among the church, among some of us. Some people get saved simply to avoid hell. They think that hell sounds really bad, fire, eternal torment. So they ask, what do I need to do? to get out of that, to avoid that. And so with their fire insurance in their hands, they're content to live out the rest of their life without really considering much about Jesus. Sure, you go to church, you smile when the preacher does his thing up there, you give uh, a little bit in the offering plate, but I ask you do, you, do you really want Jesus to come back? For some, it would be, the answer would be, not yet. You don't want him to do that. You want him to hold off like as long as he can, right? You want instead, you'd rather dream about cars and trucks. You'd rather experience vacations. You long for a good job. You want kids. You want to make some money. And then later in life, you want to retire, you want to play with your grandkids. You want to do a little golfing or go fishing. You want all of this more than you want Jesus. You want Jesus. So I, I ask you to question yourself. Do you long to see Jesus? Are you eagerly waiting for him to return? Now I think that it's, it's very hard for us to identify in other people faith that is genuine. Or faith that is real and saving. I find myself asking from time to time, is this person really even saved? So I think it's almost impossible for us to know. But I, I'm convinced that this right here is one really big clue. So I ask you, do you long for Jesus 
more than anything else. If not men and women, boys and girls, I tell you to test yourself. Something is wrong with your faith if you don't long for Christ. Has your decision to believe in Jesus changed everything for you and turned your whole world upside down so that what you value more than dreams, money, retirement is Christ? I feel that this is a way I need to press you, push you, because this is what the text says. The text says that he will come back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Some might question why we would look at the book of Hebrews when a pandemic is underway. I mean, preacher, can't you find anything more relevant that meets our needs, something better than Hebrews? I'd say just stop and think about it. The theme of this book is Jesus is better. If I could give you one gift during this pandemic, it would not be, it would, it would not be an immunity to this disease. It would be that God would give you greater longing and desire to see Christ. Jesus met God's demands. Jesus put away sins. These are your two biggest needs. And during this crisis, it's my prayer that you will grow in your longings for him. There's a song I love to sing because of its simplicity and its powerful message. I won't sing it today. I encourage you to look it up. The song is Give Me Jesus. I love how the song starts. It says, in the morning, when I rise, in the morning, when I rise, give me Jesus. Is that true of you? You wake up in the morning thinking, you know, all these other things I could focus on, all these other things that could get my attention, but in the morning, I just can't wait. I just can't wait to get in the word and learn about Jesus. I love the chorus, for in the chorus of that song, the author says, you can have all this world but give me Jesus. You can have all this world, just give me Jesus. Is that true of you? Would you make that profession? Then the song ends on a powerful note as well. It says, and when I come to die, Lord, and when I come to die, give me Jesus. Let me pray to God at this time and ask him to give us a greater longing for Jesus who's one-time sacrifice, met God's demands, and put away sins. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I would pray that you would give us Jesus. Give us a deeper love for Christ. Give us greater longings for him than for retirement and for security than for a strong market in our country. And so we pray as we sang before this sermon, come, Lord Jesus, come. It's moved, Father, by the words of that song and the verse when it says, how our spirits 
long and look for you. Lord, I would pray that that would be true of the members of Colonial Baptist Church. And I would pray for any person under the sound of my preaching who believed on Jesus and who had a superficial faith, who wanted to do so just to get out of hell, to get out of that eternal consequence, but then has no longings for Jesus today, who doesn't consider him. I would pray, Lord, that they would see that their faith is, is, is missing. Their faith is missing the mark for when one truly believes in Jesus and is saved from their sins, they are one who desperately awaits for the return of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would do this in our church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.